greet each other in the name of the Lord here this evening as we're gathered here for the concluding of our conference meeting and glad to see each one is gathered out here this evening. Question I would have. You don't need to answer this question, but think about it a little bit. We talk about the good old days and how many people like to think about the good old days. Again, you don't need to answer that, but you think about it. But you know, God talks about the good old days and yet in a way that we wouldn't look at the good old days. You know, we think of the good old days as a time back there when things were better than what they are now, easier than what they are now, maybe a little more calmer than what they are now. And yet, if we look back on those good old days, we might realize they probably longed for the good old days before them because maybe it wasn't quite as easy as we think. Maybe things weren't quite as smooth and easy for them as we would like to think. You know, when we look back at old-time pictures and old-time ways of things that's being done, we, we think, that, you know, that might have been pretty nice. And, uh, and yet, uh, it might not have been quite as nice as we think. And yet God spoke of, I want to say it, the good old days. I don't want to pull that out of context because of what he has to say. But I have two scriptures I want to look at, and first is in Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 16 through 17. <clears throat> and here we will see where he is talking about the old days. Jeremiah six sixteen. Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. Also I set watchmen over you, saying, Hearken to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not hearken. And so I also want to go ahead and go to Ezekiel chapter 3 and get some of the same thought here Ezekiel 3 starting at verse 16 and it came to pass that at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came unto me saying son of man I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel therefore hear the word of my mouth and give them warning from me when I say it unto the wicked, thou shalt die, surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speaketh the, to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thy hand. Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wicked way, nor from his, from his wickedness or his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. 
And so what we see in these two passages, we see the word watchman. And I want to come back to that in a little bit. First, I want to point out here that God was dealing with Israel and offering them something because Israel had transgressed against God. Israel was guilty of covetousness and they committed abominations that they were not ashamed of. And so God had pointed this out through the prophet. But then in verse 16, he said, Thus the Lord said, Stand ye in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. Ask for the old paths. As I did give that some thought, as I was thought of our work at conference, as I think of the time we're here and we're spending in conference and uh, the discussions that we have, and I think of the old ways God was giving to Israel an opportunity and pointing out to them the opportunity that there is a better way. Because they was wandering from him. They had strayed from him. But he is saying, there is a better way. I want you to take and consider the old paths. And so if they stopped and considered that and thought about what is the old paths, what is God referring to? Because he said, where, there, where the good way is the good way. And if they would have been thinking about that, they could have thought of all that God had done for them. They could have been thinking about what God had led them out of and what he was doing for them. And yet they were rejecting it and moving away from it. And but then he said, And I also set watchmen over you, saying, Hearken to the sound of the trumpet. But they say, We will not hearken. And so God was merciful. God was being merciful to them because he was saying, There is a better way than what you're living. There is a way I want you to go back to. And he said, and I've set watchmen over you. In other words, the watchmen were there to be speaking to the people, to be uh, sharing what God was wanting for them. But he said, but you, but he said, when they sounded the trumpet, he said, you didn't listen, you didn't hear. And they, there was those that had a responsibility, a job to sound the trumpet, to get the attention of the people, to maybe be bringing a warning to the people. And he said, but we will not hear. You know, I said, you know, we, we think about the good old days. We think about the time that we could, maybe that was a better time. And sometimes we think it would be nice to be there. And yet here Israel had the opportunity that God was giving them to go back and to be living in the way that God intended for them and not to be straying away from him. And he also set up the watchman. All right, in Ezekiel 6 then, we have here where he said that he is, he was speaking to Ezekiel here, I believe, because he said, son of man. He said, I've made you a watchman under the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word of, at my mouth and give them 
give them warning from me. And then we read the next verses and how God is saying, you need to warn the wicked. Give them an opportunity to repent. Warn the wicked. And if the wicked repent and does not repent, if we do not, if the watchman does not do his job in warning the wicked, he will be held accountable. But he said, but if you have warned the wicked, and yet he does not turn from his wicked ways, he says, his blood is on his own head. It's not, it would not be on your account. And so as I meditated on these thoughts and these scriptures, and, and what does that mean for us here today? You know, the Old Testament is given to us for learning, examples and learning. And so the question would be, would God have us go back and search out old paths? Is there old paths God would want us to go back on? Because maybe have we strayed or went in a wrong direction? And we can look at our individual selves and ask that question. But as I have sat here in conference and pondered this thought, I was given it thought throughout the conference here. As we make our decisions, as we discuss the things before us and we make decisions, you know, sometimes I ask the question to myself, and that is, has the right decision been made? And sometimes I think back to what I would call the old paths, and I think back as to when the conference was started, and those that had a vision for the church of what they came out of, and the vision they had for the church 50 years ago. You know, 50 years ago, that seems like a long time. It is for some people. Some of us has already crossed over that 50-year mark and beyond that. And so maybe we can look back and we can see the old paths there. And so I've, I've wondered, you know, are there times that we should consider the old paths? Is there times we should be considering looking back and maybe considering what the, the founding fathers of our conference had in mind and some of the issues they were facing then? And why did they come to the conclusions that they did in how they were directing the church. And so as I think of the word watchman, we had that in Jeremiah and also here in Ezekiel. Watchman, maybe today we would say that is us as the ordained. God has given us a position. God has put us in this position and in responsibility. And so if God has called us to that, are we sounding the trumpet? Are we being the watchman that is standing there? Then when we hear a word from the Lord, we're ready to speak it. When we see maybe that there, the church is going in a direction that maybe it shouldn't, that maybe there's things that are 
coming into the church, that we see it slowly coming in. Maybe sometimes it's not coming in slowly, but things that are coming into the church and we can see that it is something that is that can be detrimental to the church. Are we as the watchmen, are we there ready to sound the trumpet? Because do we have a concern? Are we concerned when we see these things happening? Yes, we have a concern for the wicked. We're called to preach the word to those. But we also have a responsibility to the church. And I think that's one of our main responsibilities that God has given us to be guiding and directing the church. And so what are we allowing to come into the church? Are we being the watchmen that are seeing things that come in and we sound the trumpet because we realize it's something that is going to be detrimental to the church? Are we willing to do that? And so I'd ask probably each of us, but I would be asking the question to us as ordained brethren. You know, are, are we concerned for the church? Do we have a concern for the church that it burdens us? Because if we look back over the years, have we seen maybe where the church maybe is moving away from what it started from and for the reasons? Does it concern us that when we see things that come in and start weakening the church, weakens our members? Are we willing, is there a time that maybe we need to go back on the old paths and learn some things from there? To bring it up to our time that we can learn from and then be able to use it and look at the things around us. Because God has given us as watchmen. God has given us a responsibility to the church. And the church is the bride of Christ. And Jesus and God is wanting a pure, holy, and unspotted church. And so I want to challenge us as ministers, as watchmen. Are we concerned for that purity and holiness in the unspotted church? To keep it unspotted from the filth and corruption of the world that we see is challenging the church today. Are we willing to take the stands that we need to do? Are we willing to make the decisions that we need to make? Is God asking us to consider the old paths? And in brethren, as, as watchmen, are we there hearing his voice? And are we being diligent in the work that he has called us as watchmen to do? It's a challenge I want to leave with each of us here this evening. Shall we stand for prayer? Heavenly Father, we humbly bow before you here this evening. 
We just want to thank you for your church. We want to thank you for the work of the church. We thank you for our time being gathered here for conference. We thank you, too, for your Holy Spirit's presence being with us. As we've looked at the issues before us, and, Father, the things that we see happening in the church today, I pray, Father, that we do have a burden, that we do have a concern, and that our desire is to see that the church is a pure, holy, unspotted church for you. And may our desires be to lead the church in that way. May we hear your voice, and may we be ready to sound the trumpet, to be able to bring out warnings when we see the dangers. Father, may your presence be here with us this evening. May you bless each one that's come out tonight. And we just pray your special blessing upon Brother Richard as he would share the message this evening. That, Lord, as we know the possibility of apostasy, but also may we be able to realize that there is a way out of that. And so, Father, bless him with the words to speak this evening, and may our hearts and minds be open to receive it into our lives. We pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Come here this evening in the fear of the Lord. Pray that the Spirit of God will be pleased to anoint our hearts together in this service. Be a service where God would smile upon Our brother has given us a challenge this evening. The word way has been mentioned a number of times. In Isaiah chapter 30, it talks about a difficult time. And then it says, And thine ears shall hear a word behind thee, saying, This is the way. Walk ye in it. And I pray that our hearts would be turned toward God that God could speak to us and we know it's the voice of God you say this is the way walk in it I've chosen to use the handout tonight and I understand that there's some difficulties with that it's going to be difficult for you to discipline yourself and not look at a raid already some of you page clear through it so now that's over. So now we can start again. And also the challenge of uh, holding this little brochure and your Bible at the same time. That could be, could be difficult. <clears throat> but I've done this to try to help with comprehension and retention. Uh, as we look at this subject. <clears throat> I'll try to keep you up to speed in the pages that I'd like to use. But on the cover, I've looked, I've recorded the, written the two verses that we looked at last night. Now, 2 Peter chapter 3, 17, does these with the subject last night, the danger of apostasy. And he warns us that we know these things before, beware, lest we be led away of the air of the wicked and fall from your own steadfastness. The next verse is the subject for tonight, the text for tonight. The remedy for apostasy is to grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom be glory both now and forever. Amen. 
Now, the word grace is a word that is uh, misunderstood in a lot of our circles. Some people have the idea that grace is God winking at sin, overlooking sin. And uh, see if they say, well, in the Old Testament was law, in the New Testament, the age of grace. Well, what was Noah saved by? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace was in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. But grace is not God winking at sin. Grace is the goodness of God. It's the help of God. It's the enabling power of God. I think Strong says grace is that divine influence upon the heart with its reflection in the life. The divine influence. You think about the divine influence on your heart. Now, I know that salvation is a choice. I understand that. But I was made to think of Jonah when he experienced what he did there with the whale. And the whale got this bellyache and got rid of him. And he came out of there. I don't know. What do you think he looked like? Covered with whatever? Some time ago, we had some problem with groundhogs. And we have a way to treat them with liquid manure. And so one day, I took the machine out. And I found this hole. And I uh, filled it up. And usually that's the end of the story, see. But this particular time, there was a fox came out of there. I mean, he came out full speed, four or five feet in the air, jumped off, went down through the field, got down at the end, he looked back and goes, what was this about, see. And I think Jonah had something like that. What did Jonah say when he came out of that whale? And whatever he did, he said, Salvation is of the Lord. How much did Jonah have to do with it? Say, Now, I know we have our part to play. I understand that. But let's not forget that grace is the divine influence upon the heart. None of us would have got saved if it wouldn't have been for grace. Anybody get saved here without grace? If you got saved without grace, you didn't get saved. There's only one way to get saved. And that's the work of God's grace and goodness upon the heart to bring conviction upon your heart. You can reject that grace. But first of all, God's the prime mover in salvation. And so it's by the grace of God. That same divine influence that brought us to Christ is the same divine influence that can, is the remedy for apostasy. And so he says, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that word knowledge has several meanings, but one is just simply epigonosos, which means information. But there's also the word knowledge is used in the Bible as a, um, a close, intimate relationship. It's the word that's used of the most intimate human relationship in marriage. You read in the Old Testament, a certain man knew his wife and she conceived. It's an intimate relationship. And to know God intimately, to grow in grace and in the knowledge, have an intimate relationship. That is going to be the remedy. Now, as I bring, look at this message tonight, if we're going to profit from this, 
there are two words I want you to think about. And the one is honesty, and the second one is courage. If we're going to have the remedy for apostasy, we have to be honest with ourselves as to where we're at. Where am I? <clears throat> is that a fair question to ask? Am I a candidate for apostasy? Is that a fair question? Or are we like Habakkuk when God sent him to be to prophesy to Israel concerning the judgment that he was going to bring? He had a little controversy with God. He said, God, I don't understand this. You're sending me to give a message of judgment to, to your people? Now he says, we are bad, but we're not as bad as the Chaldeans who you're going to use to punish us. He said, thou hast appointed them for judgment. And so do we consider that we are a candidate? Now your brethren didn't invite me here to preach to the Virginia Conference. You didn't invite me here to preach to EMU. You invited me here to preach the Southeastern Conference. Is that right? And so that's my audience tonight. But let me ask you, are you and I any different than the Apostle Peter when Jesus said, Peter, Satan hath desired to have you. Do you live with awareness that Satan has a desire to have you? But thank God for the rest of what Jesus said, but I've prayed for you. Oh, thank God for his intercessory work. That when we're tempted to take that way, that our precious Lord Jesus, who atoned for our sin, is also at the throne of God interceding for your behalf. That you don't need to go that way. As I thought about this and I thought about our brother's challenge early in my ministry, I heard a seasoned, I was in the audience, of a seasoned minister who said, speaking about the responsibility of the watchman, he said, when you take the vow, an ordination vow, you reduce your chances of heaven by 50%. That rocked me. When God says that if you don't, Warn the wicked, and the wicked man perishes. I'm going to require his blood at your soul. And perhaps we need a new awareness of the responsibility that God places on our hearts when he calls us into that work. Hebrews said, Obey them that have the rule over you, for they watch for your soul, that they may give an account. They may do it with joy and not with grief. All of us face the danger of apostasy. Apostasy happens sometimes by design and sometimes it happens by default. I have been in your circles a number of times over the years and I never sensed that there'd be somebody here who wants to see apostasy happen by design. But at the same time, I'm aware that apostasy can be happen because of default. Someone has said, evil prevails because good men do nothing. 
is it fair to say that apostasy happens when good men do nothing? Now, apostasy is an individual matter. It's also a church matter. And may I say to this conference body, um, if the leadership doesn't take a stand, there's not much the membership can do. In leadership, I call you to take your responsibility seriously. I don't want to reminisce too much. Old men do that. I understand if I'm right that 1972 was when this conference started. Now, I was ordained in the Lancaster Conference in 1966. So I remember well the challenges of what it was to do something about the seemingly apostasy. 1966, 1968, Lancaster Conference made a new discipline, which caused a lot of concern. 1969, we had a large movement out of the conference, known as, at that time, 3M, Mennonite Messianic Mission, later became known as Eastern Mennonite Church. I was just a young preacher. I went to conference and listened to the conference sessions. And there was men that would get up and express their concerns. Maybe a challenge like Robert gave us tonight. Session after session. The first session of conference after the Eastern Brethren left, there was not a word of concern. And the moderator at the conference said, what a blessed conference we had. We had no negative voice today. And you wouldn't believe how fast things happened. In the next three years, things went quickly. Hold your hat. And I'll maybe give some illustrations of that. Now, I've been with, we call it the conservative movement. When I saw what was happening, I thought, well, I guess we'll just have two churches. We'll have a liberal church and we'll have a conservative church. That's it. I never dreamed that we would have what we have today with all those splits and splinters within the conservative element. And the liberals hold our feet to the fire. And they say, you see, you conservatives can't even get along with each other. That's not to our credit. But my observation is that in some of our circles, it is not like this. It is like this. It is so gradual, and we get used to it. And if we don't get a hold of some things, in 20 years' time, we're going to be right where the conference was, the reason a lot of us left. Are you okay with that? If you're not okay with it, that's okay. I know what direction you're going. 
All right, let's go to the next page. Are these pages numbered? I don't know if they numbered them or not. They are numbered. So the one page, the remedy for apostasy, is that page one or two? That's page two. The next page is page two? Okay, all right. Okay, the remedy for apostasy. You will notice I have a square block here, and you talk about people, um, you know, thinking inside the box and people thinking outside the box. Uh, first of all, I want you to think inside the box, and then we're going to think outside the box. Now, I want you to think about this box as your life. And your life is what you think. What we think, how we think, why we think what we think, the thinking process. And our from our thinking, how we think. Now, Paul wrote to the Philippians and told us how to think. He said, let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. He says, think like Jesus thought. Now, depending on how you think, see, determines your values. Our thinking determines our values. Our values is what we think is important. Our, our value system. Uh, the uh, catchword today is world view. I don't really like that word because I don't think we ought to be following the world view. But the world view is a word that's used, the catchword for our values, what's important. And so actually, we make our choices out of our values. See, we really don't settle a lot of time. We face issues in life day after day, and all of a sudden you make a choice. And you make that choice out of your value system. You don't sit down sometimes. Sometimes it's called for rethinking. But basically, you have this value system in place from a result of years and years of thinking. And so from that value system that you operate on, your frame of reference, if you want to call it that, you, you make choices. So. Now, there's good choices and there's bad choices. There's wise choices and unwise. There's right choices and wrong choices. And those choices are determined from your value system. And our value system is determined by how we think, so it's important how we think. That's why Paul in Romans said, be not conformed to the world. Don't think like the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You need to change the way you think. Thinking is bedrock to our life and even to our destiny. So I have this process. Thinking determines our values. Values determine our choices, and choices determine our destiny. And so this matter of apostasy, whether it's falling from, from the truth or whether it is stead, being steadfast and growing in grace, depending, first of all, on how we think. Now, what determines how we think? What determines your thinking? And I could ask for suggestions, but I went to the, the idea of putting around the box, get outside the box, and I want you to think about things that determine our thinking. And you might think of, of many other ones. Uh, for instance, on the right side, I put the word culture. Now, culture is just the way people do things. And we talk about different cultures, you know. 
Different communities have different cultures. Different families have different cultures. Culture is simply the way people do things. And some people, you know, are influenced. Now, some people are influenced more by one of these or two of these than others. But, and this is like musical chairs. These things move around. And you notice I have the CEO at the top. That is the chief executive officer. You know, think, think of this box as your life and, and think about somebody sits at the head of the table. In a corporate meeting, you have the men around the table, but at the head of the table sits the CEO. And he'll take input from all around, but eventually he makes the decisions. And so there's something in your life that determines your thinking. Something sits at the head of the table. And it's important what sets at the head of your table. For some people, it is culture. Just simply influenced by the way people do things. In, in a, a lot of ways, just many ways. The fashion world is determined by this, you know, where the skirts come up or the skirts go down or, or you know, what you wear, what, how you get comb your hair or whatever, but many other ways in life. Whatever the culture is, that influences my thinking. People are driven by culture. See. Now there's other people that are, culture don't bother them too much. But some people are driven by pleasure. They just live for pleasure. Work all week for the weekend. See. And so there's, that, that sets the head of some people's table. I'm just making a lot of suggestions here. For some people, it's money. Money sets at the head of the table. They can hardly even go to church without thinking about what they're going to do the next day because they're thinking about money. Money sets at the head of the table. It's, it's, their, it's their passion. That's, that's what sets at the head of the table. Well, then I have the media. Hmm, maybe it's tie the next one together. Internet, cell phones, how much does social media influence your thinking? We used to talk about the dangers of television. And this thing of the internet is the diff most difficult situation that the church faced in my lifetime. And we weren't prepared for it. It's like the Trojan horse. It hit us broadside. at our fingertips. I understand that there are over 200,000 explicit pornography pages on the internet. 200,000. But even the social media, Facebook and Twitter and whatever else is out there. I mentioned last night that people are being influenced and becoming socially bonded to individuals without faith or without uh, inadequate faith. How much time do you spend with social media compared to your spending with the Word of God? See. But how much do those things... Other people are affected by feelings. Now, some people don't have much feelings, and some people have all feelings. And, and just how they feel. They make decisions by how they feel. 
If I feel like getting up in the morning, I do. If I don't feel like getting up, I don't. If I feel like going to church, I go. If I don't feel like it, God, I would go to prayer meeting if I feel like it. Are there times you don't feel like going to prayer meeting? There are times I didn't feel like going. But I made up my mind to go, and oftentimes those are the times I was blessed the most. <laughs> See? But there's people that, that their thinking gets influenced by how they feel. Oh, sometimes vocation influences our thinking. What we read influences our thinking. <coughs> On the other side. Now the one is truth here. I'm going to look at that. You notice I have truth pretty well at the top here. Now we heard about truth today. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Now I'm not talking about just truth. I'm talking about truth's truth. I'm talking about God's truth. Okay. And that is what really should influence our thinking. I'd like to suggest that truth, if we're going to experience the remedy of apostasy, truth must set at the head of the table. Truth has to trump everything. Truth has to trump culture. Truth has to trump pleasure. Truth has to trump money. It has to trump the media. The feelings, vocation, reading. I have on the other side, church standards. Church standards are important. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. But truth has to trump church standards. It has to trump relationships. Oh, we like relationships. We want relationships. Relationships are extremely important. We're going to talk about this a little later. But trump, truth has to trump relationships. Family. People are influenced by family more than anything else. I've been to ministers' meetings where we sat down and we decided something. And a certain man went home and talked to his wife and came back and changed his mind. See? And so some people are influenced strongly by family. See, there's family blood and there's spiritual blood. And family blood's important. But tell you, friends, family blood is only for time. Spiritual blood is for eternity. We all, maybe not, many of us have relationships and family that are disheartening to us. And I've learned, well, I appreciate family blood. I've learned to appreciate the church, God's family. Friends influence your thinking. Associates, social media. You could add other things to this. I just want you to think about, I want you to think about what influences your thinking. For every person here tonight, there is something that sets at the head of your table. I want you to think about that. What sets at the head of your table? Now, to develop this a little farther, you know, we have the freedom to choose, but the consequences of those choices are already determined by a sovereign will of God. We have the freedom to choose, but the consequences of those choices are already determined by a sovereign God from which there is no appeal. I'm quoting A.W. Tozer there. 
Now, to help us to develop this thinking, I have here on the left side of it, page two, five phases of church life. Or should I say five phases uh, that steps that result in apostasy. This is also, you. I want you to think about this as your person. I want you to think about your church. And the first one of these is the mode that I will call the passionate mode. You can go to next page. And this is a description of the passionate mode. I want you to think about which of these five modes you are in. You're, you're in one of these. And the first is the passionate mode. Now you'll notice that I have truths sitting at the head of the table. We have the thinking, the values, the choices, but truth sets at the head of the table. And these things are still around the table. It's not that these things don't exist and have an influence on us. Culture has an influence. Media has an influence. Doctrine has an influence. All these things I have around the outside the box influence our thinking, but something has to set at the head of the table because all of these things have an influence on us. And I'm starting with the, with the, with the first one as the answer to the remedy of apostasy is that we must have truth set at the head of the table, unequivocally. Now, what is it like to be passionate? We're talking about the passionate mode. You know what it is to be passionate? Can you be passionate without action? Now, when I began to... <clears throat> have interest in the dear young lady that's now my wife for 63 years. She thought I became rather passionate way too early because we started dating around Thanksgiving time. I mean, around Valentine's time. I thought it was a good time, see. And I went to the five and 10 or somewhere and I got the biggest heart that I could find full of candy. I mean, it was a huge thing. Now we were just starting this relationship but she thought I was overdoing it, say. But I was passionate about it, say. And when you're passionate about it, you, you put your all into it, say. And I'm suggesting here, first of all, here's some description of a life that's passionate, of a church that's passionate. And the first thing I suggest is a vibrant prayer life. Talked about that last night. Closet prayer. Getting the door shut. Meeting the Father. A vibrant prayer life. I believe a church that is passionate has an emphasis on doctrine. Now you notice I have doctrine sitting there near the top. An emphasis on doctrine. Now these five modes I have identified with the seven churches in Revelation. And you will notice the two churches that I have here. I don't have time to read all these passages. I put the questions down here. Is the Philadelphia church and the Smyrna church. Now, those are the only two of the seven churches. These were the churches in Asia Minor that were there when John wrote the book of Revelation around 96 AD. These were the original churches. And in one generation, Jesus said about five of them, that unless they repent, they would no longer be a church. Now see, what makes the church a church? 
Is the church, is this a church because you have a sign out here that says Pike Mennonite Church? Does that make it a church? See, what makes the church a church? A church is a church when it's built on the foundation of the Word of God. When a church moves away from the Word of God, from truth, they no longer qualify to be a church. And Jesus said, I'm going to remove your candlestick. But these two churches were churches that God find no fault with. And I like to suggest that they were passionate in their faith. It says a number of times in Revelation chapter 3 of the Philadelphia church that they were faithful. They held the faithful word. They were faithful. The Smyrna church was a suffering church, but it was a church of conviction. There was a church that was passionate. Now, if you're going to die for your faith, you have to be passionate. Polycarp was the bishop at this church. And they were feeding the saints to the lions and burning them at the stake. They were going to burn Polycarp. And one of the men that was in charge of arresting him said, Polycarp, something like this, Polycarp, you're such a nice old man. He was 86 years old. He said, you're such a nice old man. He said, we really don't want to do this to you. He said, Polycarp, all you have to do is say Caesar is Lord and we'll let you go. That wouldn't have been hard to say, would it? What a Polycarp said, for 86 years, I've served my Lord, and he's done me no harm. How can I turn my back on him now? And they burn him at the stake. How could he do that? He was passionate. Someone talked about the beginning of this conference, 1972. I want to tell you, friends, leaving conference or starting a new group was not without its took courage you had to be made passion if I'm right there's not an ordained man living who was part of the group that started Southeastern Conference that are still with Southeastern all gone I stand before you with great gratitude to God that I'm still here. But that took courage. Some of you mentioned about 40 years ago when I was deathly sick and didn't think I was going to be here anymore. And that happened in the process when we were asking for a release for conference. And there were people told my family the reason Richard is sick is because you're leaving conference. It takes courage takes conviction. I see in the lifelines you have this article about the stand that the Amish men, Amish people took to have your private schools. About that same time, there was a case before the su Supreme Court of Ohio known as the Levi Wisner versus State of Ohio case in which Levi Wisner was the pastor of a church who started a Christian school. And the government said, you're disobeying the law. We're going to arrest you. you. You cannot do that. You must send your children to public school. And he went to court. And as Levi Wisner was on the witness stand, he gave his testimony 
that he had conviction about exposing his children to the evils of the public system. And they said, Mr. Wisner, what is conviction? And the court decided what a conviction is. And they said a conviction is a deeply held belief that you will not change with threats of fines, threats of jail, or jail time, or even death. It's a firmly held belief. And I had this confidence that many of your leaders that led this in 1972 were men of conviction. But as in any movement, you know, whenever there are some people that just go along for the ride. And while Israel all came out of Egypt, not all of Egypt got out of Israel. Biblical convictions, obedience. These are talking about being passionate. Oh, a, a godly lifestyle. Sin is abhorred. I added another one here, and that is passionate preaching. A man told me some time ago, speaking of the good old days, I guess, he said preachers used to preach like it mattered. Preachers, tonight, do you preach like it matters? Would your members say, our preacher preaches like it matters? Or is it just a matter of my responsibility and I got this information in my head and I got to get it somehow to your head and when I'm done, I'll say amen and we'll all go home. Is it simply a duty? Or does it matter? Do you understand that in your audience are people with souls that are going to live forever? They're going to go to hell or heaven depending on the choices they make. Those choices are going to be made by how they think and you have the opportunity to take them to the truth of the word of God and Help them Sunday after Sunday to commit their lives to the truth and make decisions that will take them to the right place. Three things that are involved in the middle of this passage, this list that I want to talk about. And that is a passion that has to do with love. And first of all, it's a love for God. I call this separating love gave that verse from Jesus' teaching that we're to love God with all of our heart, a passionate love. Love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. And Jesus said this is the first commandment. It's the greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it, I shall love thy neighbor as thyself. And they said on these two, hang all the law and the commandments. These are the greatest. Now, if you love God with all your heart, it's going to separate you from evil. It's going to separate you from the world. It's going to separate you in your values. It's going to separate how you think. It's going to separate how you do business. It's going to separate you how you drive your car. It's going to affect every area of your life. Separating love. Oh, we've called it nonconformity. Now, I call it separating love. Isn't that more positive than nonconformity? But see, nonconformity is a result of, of, of the work of God in your heart separating you from evil, separating you from the world's values. It's not just about how you dress. 
somehow we got a warped idea that nonconformity has to help how you dress. It does have to help you dress, but it's a way of life. It's a lifestyle. It's a value that affects every area of your life. It affects your language. It affects how you treat people. Love for God just separates you. It's a separating love. Secondly, it's a, the suffering love. That you are willing to take loss for the good of other people. You are willing to suffer. You know, Jesus said, love your enemies. You know, humanly, that's impossible. Humanly, that's impossible. But the Bible says that if you love God with all your heart, he's going to shed his love in your heart. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. And you can love people that don't love you if you have the love of God in your heart. And so this part of this passionate is loving others, doing what's best for them. The third love I think about is the sharing love. And that's on, on the great commandment. Now, these two commandments represent the two basic Bible doctrines regarding discipleship. Hear me clearly. There are many doctrines that are important. The doctrine of grace, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of redemption, the doctrine of regeneration, and their doctrine in relation to salvation. But I'm talking about discipleship. Now, the Anabaptists said that the essence of Christianity is discipleship. If it ain't, excuse me, teachers, if it ain't discipleship, it ain't salvation. And there's where we part company with the evangelicals. The evangelical salvation is the done deal when you, quote, accept Christ. And that's not even a biblical term. The biblical term is receiving Christ. But the essence of salvation, the two great Bible doctrines regarding discipleship is loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbors yourself. But there's a third one that Jesus talked about and that just before he left. He said that we're to go in all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And that is the sharing love. Separating love has to do with God. Suffering love has to do with our enemies. Sharing love has to do with the lost. Let's go to the next page. Now I'm dating some things. Now I said the two great discipleship doctrines are separating love and suffering love. If you want to call them I have them here, nonconformity and nonresistance. From 1930, 1900, 1935, we had a biblical revival in the Mennonite church. In the 1800s, the Mennonite church was really not very spiritual, what I can read. I know of churches that had spit tunes in the pulpit. How would you like if you're a preacher? chewed tobacco and had a spittoon in the pulpit. Now, when I read of the good old days, and I spell that D-A-Z-E. 
See, not everything about the good old days was good. But there was a revival because there was an emphasis on truth. We had men like John Kaufman, men like George R. Brunk I, men like Daniel Kaufman. We got doctrines of the Bible, book. As a result of that, they began to preach Bible doctrine. And people began to develop Bible convictions. And we developed a lifestyle that was nonconformed to the world. Before that, number of people went into the army, the Mennonite church. But there's convictions grew about loving your enemies, about loving God with all your heart and being passionate about it. And so we have the Twin Towers of New Testament discipleship. The next page shows when the towers came down. Oh, I don't have that. That's, that's missing. All right, let's go back to page, what is it, four? Are they mixed up? What page? Oh, okay. All right, well, we'll have to do some shifting here. Somehow we got them mixed up. All right, everybody remembers 9-11. You remember 9-11? Yeah, 2001. Well, 9-11 meant a lot to me for a long time before that. It is 9-11 is the day that I was ordained to the ministry. That's my 9-11, 1966. But in 2001, 9-11 is the date that everybody remembers, right? The world has never been the same. When the enemy flew those twin towers, those two planes into the twin towers. Nineteen hundred, nineteen thirty-five. The twin towers were built. Suffering love, suffering love. They became pillars in our churches. Nineteen sixty. The coming of the. Beatles to America changed the culture. And that ideas of rebellion against authority and down with the establishment trickled down into our churches. And we began to experience the disdain for authority. I sat in a minister's meeting at Eastern Mennonite College, 1968, Young preacher, ordained two years. And a preacher from Franklin Conference got up and said, I have a confession to make. He got up and he said, I'm here to make confession and apologize that for 14 years I preached untruth. He said, I preached for 14 years that women ought to wear something on their head in the covering. He said, I'm sorry, I was misled. Not a bishop, not a person got up, encountered that man. Early in 1970s, I sat in conference. A man from Virginia conference was a guest speaker. I'm talking about the towers being attacked. He was preaching on 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 
when Moses was on the mount. You know the story? And Moses put a veil on his face and came down off the mountain. And he said, do you know why Moses put a veil on his face? He said he put a veil on his face because he lost the glory. He was up there close to God and he lost the glory. And he put this veil on his face so people wouldn't see he lost the glory. And then he said, the reason the Mennonite church started dressing plain is because they lost the glory. And it's a cover up for losing the glory. And I said, excuse me, I am out of here. And I never went back. But there wasn't a bishop. There wasn't anyone that countered that man that day. And the twin towers started to fall. The twin towers of separating love. The passion was leaving. And the tower came down. The old preachers used to say, when we lose nonconformity, we're going to lose non-resistance too. And they've proven to be true prophets. One of the men who's been a well-known in a Mennonite church from this valley said recently, my son was in the audience, a man that's well-known, said, I no longer believe in non-resistance. I am now a pacifist. And so the towers, twin towers came down. You know what happened also on the day the twin towers came down? A plane flew into the Pentagon. Remember that? What does that represent? The Pentagon is where the strategy was defined for attacking the enemy. Turn to page five, I think. I'm talking about a sharing love. Is it page five, 1935 to 1960? Sharing love, evangelism. The Virginia Mennonites, this is home base for you. The Virginia Mennonites of the Shenandoah Valley who began an outreach in neighboring West Virginia as early as the Civil War and developed vigorously after 1900 to 1957. They had established a total of 21 congregations, missions, and preaching points in the area with a total of 553 members. In 1958, Virginia Mennonite Conference had a total of 51 unorganized congregations. Now, friends, somebody was passionate about sharing the lost. Do we have that passion? Have we lost the Pentagon. Have we lost the passion for the lost? I submit to you that when we lose those two cardinal discipleship doctrines, you also lose the third one. I remember Eli Yoder from then from Gladys. I think it was at a meeting down here somewhere that I heard him say that. He talked about if you want a true church. He said, if you want a true church, he said, show me a church that has equal emphasis, equal emphasis on non-resistance, non-conformity, and evangelism, and I'll show you a true church. Now, there are churches that have emphasis on evangelism and not the other two. There are churches that have emphasis on non-conformity and not evangelism. 
said, you show me a church that has equal emphasis on those three cardinal doctrines, and I'll show you a New Testament church. I think that's pretty good advice. Now, we can look at the rest of this, but this doesn't concern you. But the next paragraph talks about the Indiana Michigan Conference. 1958, they had 20 stations, 10 in the Upper Peninsula. I have a daughter who lives in the Upper Peninsula. Of those 10 churches, only one of them isn't conservative anymore. The rural missions had some 500 members, largely of non-Mennonite origin. Talks about Lancaster Conference. I lived in those days. In those days, Lancaster Conference mission accounts went from a few measly dollars to over $2 million a year. Sent missionaries all over. Open churches. Washington, Washington Baltimore District had two churches. They ended up, I think, 10 or 12 in the time. They went up through the center part of Pennsylvania, up into New York. The Hess family's here as a result of that. Went clear up into New York. All the churches started up through the central part of Pennsylvania. All that was happening in the 1950s, 1960s. Have we lost our passion? I have a picture, I guess, in page six. In those years, this, this is a picture from 1951. There were various tent meeting revivals held by different organizations. Here was one of them. Maybe some of you were in the tent. That I remember being in this tent where it says, lose your sins and find your savior. They had meetings in Lancaster County for up to, well, it actually went four weeks, but 6,000 people every night for four weeks. You think they were passionate? Weekends, they tell me, it was 10 to 12 to even 15,000 people. More people outside the tent than inside the tent. What happened to our passion? I meet people. They're getting less and less. But I meet people all over the country who said, I found Christ at those tent meetings. They're dying off getting less and less. Have we lost our passion? All right, let's go to page. I'll get the pages here after a while. I think we are at page eight, is that right? Okay. The second level. When we move from the passionate level, then we get into what's called, I call the maintenance mode. And you notice what sets at the head of the table is church standards. Are church standards important? Absolutely they're important. But there's a danger of having church standards at the head of the table instead of truth. And truth is moved over to the side. And in the maintenance level, the emphasis is on submission, obedience, sin is abhorred, but there's more emphasis on practice and principle. More emphasis on the outer than the inner. Preachers, I encourage you never to teach practice without principle. Our young people need to know not only what we should do, but why we do it. That happened back 
in the 60s when practice was taught without principle. And young people said, why are we doing what we're doing? And if we don't know why we're doing what we're doing, then why do it? Is that a fair assumption? Now, there's the danger also of preaching principle without practice. And that's futile. There's a man that's well known in this valley that said, we preach, says we preach purity of doctrine. Application is personal. I want to tell you, friends, that's right out of the Protestant playbook. There's nothing Anabaptist about that. We believe in practice. We believe in principle. And every principle, if it isn't practice, will be lost. It's futile just to preach principle if you don't make application. And we are rich in history of making application to the principles of the word of God. We're rich in that. I'm calling you tonight. Let's rebuild the towers. Let's build them again. I forgot to write on here, in the back of your sheet, I forgot which church. And that was the church in Ephesus. The other two churches were Smyrna, this church, this maintenance level. Ephesus was in the maintenance level. They were very orthodox. But they left their first love. They lost their passion. And God said, I have something against you. You lost your passion. Oh, yes, church is important. It's there around the table. Truth is important. Relationships are important. Family, friends, associates. All of these things have their place. But when we move out of the passion mode, we move into the maintenance level. You, ordained brother, know with me, it's very difficult to maintain spiritual practice with people that don't have a passion for God. It's very difficult. Go to page nine. Is that it? Nine? Am I right? Okay. Are you falling from steadfastness or growing in grace? <clears throat> now who sits at the head of the table? See, after you move from the maintenance level, and after a while you get tired of that. You just get tired of the maintenance level. I had a friend of mine who was the bishop of the church, and he resigned. He said, I can get tired of raising other people's children. He said, where are the fathers? He said, they expect the school and the church to raise their children. He could tear the maintenance level. So when you're in the maintenance level long enough, you could tear to that and then you move to the tolerance level. In the tolerance level, relationships set at the head of the table. Now, relationships are extremely important. But relationships at the head of the table, then family is more important than truth, friends, associates. If you're involved in evangelism at all, you know that one of the great challenges we have in our day in community work is the divorce and remarriage problem.
And if you're in a tolerance level, you can't expect these people to separate. That's asking too much. You're restoring a relationship. Relationships are more important. And you get into the tolerance mode. And then sin is tolerated. In the tolerance mode, separation is lost. Oh, there may be an increase of activity because you have a lot of activity. When you get in a tolerance mode, there's the danger to replace truth with activity. I heard a man say one time that, you know, it's a little like when you cut a chicken's head off, there's an awful lot of activity just before death sets in. And activity is not always a sign of spirituality. I believe there's going to be spirituality, there's going to be activity. But don't let it be deceived that activity, whenever you move in the tolerance mode, there's a danger to have activity take the place of truth. Casual church life, apathy, so what? Who cares? I've been asked to teach a community Bible study recently. Community people are concerned about what's happening in the world, what, what, what's going on. And they asked me if I would teach, some community people got together and asked if I would teach some lessons on Bible prophecy. And you know what? I'm finding that community people are more interested in prophecy than some of our church people. So what? Who cares? I'll deal with it when it comes. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen anyway. That's true. Do you realize one-third of the Bible's prophecy? If it wasn't important, you think God would have written one-third of his word on prophetic issues? Well, the church at Pergamos was a church that was tolerant. This was a compromising church. Don't rock the boat. They even have what a woman preacher now you notice, truth is moving down from the side. I don't, these are like musical chairs. They should be probably all over the place. I don't know where to put it. But the next mode is the tolerance level. The next one, page 10. After the tolerance level, then we move into the acceptance level. Someone has said, sin is first abhorred, then it's tolerated, then it's accepted. And so here's where feelings set at the head of the table. Truth is moving further down. Church standards are moving down. Feelings set at the head of the table. What happens when, when feelings trump truth? Then sin is accepted. Doctrine is minimized. Situation and ethics. The two churches that identify with this are the church of Thyatira and the church of Sardis. 
church of Thyatira. It's called an adulterous church. No restraint, no standards. Maybe church standards shouldn't even be on the list here. Maybe it shouldn't be. But you live by how you feel. And you, you know, some, about 20 years ago, a man wrote a book entitled, I'm okay, you're okay. And so the thrust was that I feel I'm okay. And if I feel I'm okay, then you need to be okay that I'm okay. And if you think you're okay, I'm okay that you're okay. And so we're all going to be okay. That's the acceptance level. The church of Sardis had a name that they were living, but they were dead. Now, the name living. What would God say about our churches tonight? What would he say about your church? What would he say about my church? Which of these seven churches would he say? You have a name? But you're dead. Let's go to the last one. Apologize for the spelling being wrong on this word. This is to be relativism. I don't know if I murdered it. I apologize. If I ever do this again, it'll be changed. I'll guarantee you. But that's when everything is relative. Truth is way down at the bottom. Truth is relative. And so, you know, what truth to you may not be truth to me. And if it's truth to you, that's okay. And so truth is relative. And when that happens, sin is then embraced. Men become lovers of themselves. All kinds of things. Sexual perversion. Love for the truth is lost. And the Laodicean church, the lukewarm church, God said, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. You see the steps from being passionate to being in a maintenance mode, to being in a tolerance mode, to the acceptance mode, and finally, total apostasy. Apostasy is very seldom sudden. It's usually gradual, little by little. Tonight, I hope this helps you to analyze where you are as a person. Think about it. Think about how you think. Think about your values. Think about your choices. Are you, are you willing to be honest with where you are? Are you willing to make choices, tough choices, courageous choices that are necessary to be a passionate person for God? What would God say if you had a personal interview with him tonight? Would he say, son, daughter, I sense you're falling from your steadfastness. 
or would you say son or daughter? I just want to thank you. You're growing in grace. You're growing in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord save us from ourselves. I was thinking as Brother Richard preached, well, thinking quite a number of things. So what's the remedy? Be there on that top level, the passionate level. And when we find that we're not, we'll go to the seven churches. And what did Jesus say to them? Repent. Repent and get back there and do it passionately. So, Brother Richard gave us something to think about, he gave us something to do. Let's go home and let's live it. Would, would the people who know you say you're passionate about the Lord Jesus? The people that know me? And if not, why not? Shouldn't they? Well, anyway. Thanks again, Brother Richard. And I, I was just impressed again with Brother Richard's ability to, to take things and put them in a way that makes good sense and in some way that I just could never have thought of. And I appreciate it because it, it helps us to think. It really does. So, again, thank you. All right. Any of you want to say anything before we uh, adjourn? Give you an opportunity. Thank you. All right, I would like a motion to adjourn this session of conference. All right, all in favor, stand up and let's all stand. Brother Richard, will you dismiss us with prayer? May I say one more thing? Sure, you may. How many of you would like to see revival in our churches? I like to read about revivals. Maybe you've heard this story, but the great Welsh revival started in a prayer meeting. They prayed for a while, and after a while, they just got quiet before the Lord. And a 16-year-old girl prayed with passion and said, Lord Jesus, I love you with all my heart. And things got quiet. And after a while, someone else said the same prayer. And around the room, 
Do you think if we as an audience, as a Southeastern Conference, would get our hearts to the place where we would say, Lord Jesus, I love you with all of my heart. You think we have a revival? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you for your precious word that you've given us. It is the way of salvation, the way of truth, the way of holiness. Thank you for this conference body. Thank you for the every soul that's here tonight. You love each one dearly. And Father, I pray that you will work a revival in our hearts, in our lives, our Father. I pray you would make us aware of the workings of the evil one to try to trap us and to get us to be casual about our Christian life and not be passionate. Forgive us, God. Forgive us for not loving you like we ought. And I pray that you will just implant in us by your grace and Holy Spirit a new desire, new passion for the things that matter in life. May it be reflected in our values and how we live and that it also might be attractive to those around us that there are people who are sold out to truth and committing their lives. Be part of that bride for which Jesus is coming. Oh, Father, we look forward and we pray with the Apostle John. Even so, come Lord Jesus. So dismiss us now with your blessing. Keep us from evil. Keep us in the straight and narrow way. Keep us humble. Continue to walk close to thee that we can hear that still small voice that says this is the way walk ye in it in jesus name amen